Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about closure performance with Alex Yakushev, the creator of Closure Goes Fast. Welcome to the show, Alex. Hello, Daniel. Glad to be here. Yeah, glad to have you on. You've written quite a few really interesting blog posts and libraries over the last few years, particularly on the subject of closure performance. And then going back quite a few years, you've been involved in closure in lots of different ways. So I'm excited to finally get to talk to you about it. Likewise. Do you want to start by, yeah, giving me just a little bit of a background, your history in closure and why performance is so interesting to you at the moment? Yeah, sure. I've been using Clojure for, it's approaching 10 years, probably, something like that. I started back in university. I studied computer engineering and computer science and uh, used uh, some Lisps and Clojure during the studies. And um, after the university, I did uh, a little bit of Java, quite some bit of Lua, actually. And like after some time, I picked up Clojure again professionally. So I joined Grammarly and um, there I started doing Common Lisp. We had a team writing Common Lisp full-time, but after spending some time at the company, I spun enough webs and spread enough tendrils to kind (laughs) of, yeah, make some things in Clojure, some smaller things, some bigger things. And then, yeah, at at one point it turned out that uh, our team is writing mostly in Clojure and ClojureScript, our team and adjacent team as well. So that that's how it went. Regarding the uh, answering your performance question, so Grammarly product is basically a writing assistant, right? So uh, we have our users writing texts in different clients that support Grammarly, so to say, and uh, users write their text and they expect it to be checked for errors and uh, been offered different enhancements and improvements to their text. That all happens in real time, right? So a user writes their text and uh, we can come back to them tomorrow or someday with improvements. (laughs) We we have to show it right away. And uh, turns out that processing text is computationally intensive thing. That means that it costs money, right? We rent uh, our servers. We, We run on AWS. Basically, every checked sentence costs some money. In order to be profitable, you obviously have to spend less on average per user than you make money from them. It's a concept that apparently is too arcane for some startups, but uh, that's how we try to do it. And that becomes the motivation to reduce your costs and to be more efficient. That's how I got involved in doing the performance work. And Grammarly is a freemium service, correct? There's some people that pay you money and some people... Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is a free version that can do quite a lot, but then there are paid tiers that offer better experience in some things, just uh, more suggestions and uh, some extra features, stuff like that. Yeah, and so I imagine that if you've got a large number of free users, you don't necessarily want to spend all your money before you even get to charge them. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like, well... Probably in many companies, it goes like that, that kind of like paid users offset the costs of uh, free tier, so to say, but that's how it is. Yeah. And so the Closure Goes Fast project, it's something that I think it's just you, correct? Yeah, pretty much. Yes. Yeah. Uh, So something you've been working on since September 2017, you've been kind of involved in 
writing software and just kind of looking at Clojure from a performance perspective, which is, I think, a really valuable contribution to the Clojure community because certainly people care about performance, but I think this is probably at least you know one of the largest sort of sustained long-term investments in Clojure performance. So do you want to tell us what is Clojure Goes Fast? What's your goals here? And what have you been working on as part of that? Indeed, I, I've found this niche of basically writing things about closure performance, like digging deeper into it, investigating it, and documenting it in some form or another. And it indeed, it started with a couple of blog posts. So I wanted just to share my findings, share my knowledge about instead of this. I think it was about reflection at first. Uh, many people know about what reflection is, how to avoid it, but then there were some more obscure things that I also wanted to share with with the world. Then I started writing some libraries, or maybe wrapping some existing libraries that also that are related to closure performance that give you more insights about how your program is doing performance wise, and that help you write more efficient code, help you understand whether your code is efficient or not and how you can improve it. Yeah, so that's how it went and is going. I haven't been so much active on it lately for the last year probably, but still have plans to continue writing blog posts and keep maintaining the libraries and uh, maybe something new will appear as well if I find something interesting. Great. So one of the interesting projects, I mean, Sorry, they're all interesting. But the first one I wanted to talk about was a CLJ async profiler. So could you tell us what that is and sort of what's going on underneath what it's wrapping beneath? Yeah, absolutely. So it started a few years ago. Back then, I've seen a couple of talks about profilers and safe point bias, which is this technical problem with some of the existing profilers, like let's say Visual VM, that basically makes them less accurate when profiling certain kinds of applications. And uh, it's actually not so big of a problem if you're not doing some very low-level profiling, let's say. Anyway, it kind of like sparked this interest in some alternative profilers, one of which was Async Profiler. It's a, a Java profiler written by Andre Pengen. It's one of these new age profilers that don't have this safe point bias problem. But it's not the only thing that's interesting about it. It is actually a profiler library, so to say. So it's not a separate standalone application. It's just a library that carries some native code that you can use to attach to the JVM and take the profiles out of the application. And then another interesting part was that the output that it produced, it was just text file basically like very very simple format you have lines each line is the stack trace and the number of samples like how often this stack trace appeared in the program basically that's in contrast to i don't know some proprietary binary output formats that some profilers produce that you don't really know what to do with if you wanted to modify it somehow or process it in in any other way Another great feature of Facing Profiler was that it was very efficient, very low overhead. So the author claims that you can even like leave it running forever in production. I haven't tried that, but <laughs> you, you can certainly like you don't have to have any reservations about like turning it 
on in production takes some seconds of the profile turning it off so it doesn't influence the performance of your program while it's running. So great profiler overall. One problem I had with it, like back in the days where when I discovered it, the user experience was uh, comparatively a little bit lacking. So it was you were supposed to launch a shell script and give it a process ID of the Java application you want to profile. Right. And then after some time, it spits out this text file, which you then can render, for example, using Brandon Gregg's Flamecraft Perl script. You can render it into something visual, something you can actually look at and understand what's going on. So my idea was to take this amazing piece of technology and just make it basic, make it closer to closure users to make it more ergonomic. I wanted to have something like time macro, but for profiling, you know, time macro, it's very, yeah. it's very simple macro and uh, like it's very trivial. But in fact, the fact that it is so convenient to use makes it so that you use it often, right? So, I mean, pretty much everyone can relate to this situation. So you're writing a program you're doing it bottom up. So you start with writing some low level functions and you test them right away in your Apple, give them some basic inputs just to validate that they work. And you write another function and you run it on some basic inputs. And then it's like a blip on the radar, you know, instead of returning instantly, it has like this, it's short enough, yeah. but you can fill it. It has to be instant, but it wasn't. And Clojure makes it so easy to just okay you you can wrap it in time macro and for the good cause you probably want to wrap it in do times the internal form so that really measuring something but it's very easy to do that and that's why people do it and for example imagine you do the same thing in java to begin with you probably won't discover that performance blip might pique your interest because you'll run your program once it's built and at that point it's very hard to see that one function that probably much less efficient than it should be for some reason. The process of doing something similar to this primitive time macro is you probably have to create a test, right? And you, you set up a test and you wrap it in some timing construction and you print it to the console. So, I mean, it's possible you can do that, but just the fact that it takes more effort to do it makes you less likely to do it, if that makes sense. So to this time macro example, I wanted Profiler to be something similar because before I wrote CLJ Async Profiler and started using it, my other option would be to launch Visual VM as an example. So you launch that and you connect to the process ID of your interest then you alt tab to your Emacs, let's say, and you run the function. No, first you have to press start profiling button in Visual VM. Then you alt tab to your Emacs and you start the function there. You wait for it to finish. Then you alt tab back into Visual VM and you stop the profiler and you wait for it to generate some output that you can then look at. Again, all possible, but it doesn't sound something fun, right? And because it isn't, then you postpone doing it until the very last minute. You absolutely have to do it. There are multiple outcomes of that. If you don't use it often, then you don't really learn how to use it, so to say. You don't acquire enough skill in using it. And that skill is 
beneficial by itself. So anyway, I took async profiler and uh, wrapped it up in a closure library that you can just put into dependencies or you can even load it dynamically if your build tool supports that. And once you do have this profile macro that you can wrap your code and you can launch your code together with this profile macro, and it will generate this flame graph, this SVG file that you can then open in the browser, either from directly from the temporary folder, or you can start an embedded HTTP server to view it. And that's pretty much it. And just the mere fact that it's available from the REPL, that you don't have to time when you start the profiler, when you turn off the profiler, just because it's all within your application, makes it so much more pleasant to use it. And that's the reason why I use it a lot, basically. So yeah, that's the story of how ergonomics matters, so to say. I hope other users of my profiler, they feel the same thing as well, because yeah, that was my goal to to make it very as much ergonomic as possible so that people use it, so they learn about the performance of their program, not just because they have to, and not just because the program is so slow that they it doesn't complete or because it just takes a lot of time or because they are running out of money because they spend it all on their servers. Yeah. <laughs> but instead of that, just doing it just from mere interest, just because you can do it and it's fun. So that is the story of CLJ Async Profiler. Another interesting thing I added to it a bit later was this transformation step. So like I've said, the output of async profiler is very simple and it's malleable basically because you can easily parse it and transform it into something else, let's say, and still render it. I added the support for these user-defined transformations in CLJ async profiler so that you can use arbitrary closure code to operate on those profiling results. And why would you want to do that? There are a couple of cases. For example, if you ever use Zachtalman's Aleph, HTTP server. So it uses this manifold library under the hood for doing the asynchronous work. And the way it is implemented, it relies heavily on the callbacks. And each callback brings like five to six method invocations. So if you look at the profile of the program that uses Aleph and Manifold, and those stacks would be very big because of all those callbacks and all the methods involved Mm -hmm. in calling that. And it's not very pleasant to look at. makes it harder to visually parse the flame graph to, to understand what's going on. So you can write a transform using, let's say, regular expressions to say, okay, collapse all these consecutive stack frames that start with Manifold collapse them into one so that I don't have to see them. And that makes the, the profiler much more pleasant to look at. Or another more more useful example would be, say, profiling recursive functions. So if you ever did that, let's say you have a function, recursive function foo, that calls into regular functions A and B, and then it calls itself somewhere as well. And if you take the look at the flame graph of that function, you'll see at the bottom, you have this full frame, which is very wide. And among its children, you have very narrow invocations of A and B. And then again, very wide full 
which itself has a very narrow A and B, and then for again. So makes it kind of impossible to understand like where the time is actually spent in your recursive function. Is it like mostly A or is it mostly B or is it mostly like overhead of recursion or just non-invocations inside the full function itself? So again, using transformations, you can collapse all the consecutive frames of foo so that you have this one flat stack trace with the weights that correspond to the real time of executing A and B and the rest of, of foo. So that's what transformations are for. I haven't seen anything like that in other profilers, but just the fact that CLJSync profiler runs in the REPL and you can basically do run any sort of code on top of those profiler results makes it possible to do stuff like that. That is very cool. There was one thing you mentioned, which I wanted to just drill on in case some people aren't aware of it, briefly about what safe point bias is and why, why, why it matters or why. Safe point bias is a is a problem, basically, or kind of like technical limitation of some earlier profilers. And the problem lies in the fact that the only time how a sampling profiler works, it works by snapshotting the stack, let's say every 100 microseconds or like every millisecond, depending on the interval rate of the profiler. So it does these snapshots of the stack and it accumulates how often it's sore every stack so that in the end, we take the data about how often each stack was on the CPU at the moment that the profile was taken. We interpret that as the more some stack was on the CPU, it probably means that the time was spent there, right? So if you take 100 stack traces from your program and 99 of them were stuck in some function foo, then probably your function foo is slow. That's the intuition. And the safe point bias problem stems from the fact that these older profilers could only obtain this stack special moments called safe points, basically. That's the JVM implementation detail. Since Java programs are additionally compiled by just-in-time compiler, by the JVM, so to say, Java bytecode is compiled by just-in-time compiler, and what is running on the CPU, basically actually native code, it's not some interpreter that runs it. Most of the time, it's this native code running, and there are special points that JIT injects into this native code, save points where it allows the JVM kind of to look around and do some bookkeeping, do some servicing of the application. One of those things it can do at those points are taking the stack trace for the profiler. And if those safe points are not injected, if there are not a lot of them, or if you have some very intensive computation that happens not to contain a safe point, then basically time will be actually spent there, but you won't see that on the profile because the profiler would stack trace only after that intensive computation has happened. I hope that makes sense, but that's basically the problem. This safe point bias problem makes the output of profilers not as accurate in some cases as it should be. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you're, do you have async profiler just part of your development dependencies just kind of there injected all the time, just ready to run? Is that how you develop with it? Yeah, pretty much. So the easiest way would be to, if you use in line again or boot or tools steps and you have some sort of a list of development dependencies that you automatically load onto all the projects that you start on your machine, then you just put a CLJSM profiler as one of those dependencies. And if you need it in your program, you require the namespace and you start using it. That's how I do it. 
Yeah, well, that is a very useful tool. And flame graphs, people may have seen flame graphs in the Chrome DevTools, probably the most, and I assume, you know, just browser DevTools. I think the flame graphs became very popular because of Brandon Gregg's work on Perf and basically, yeah, his huge promoter of flame graphs as the tool to view the profiling results. And to me, it's amazing compared to the output of some regular profilers uh, used to give flame graphs to be much more informative at a glance than those profilers. But yeah, I believe that browsers like Chrome and Firefox, they contained flame graph-like renderers for quite some time in their development tools. Is there a case where you wouldn't use async profiler, where you'd go out for YourKit or JVisualVM? Yeah, actually, very good question. There is a case for that. So async profiler, actually, it uses perf under the hood. If you're running on Linux and macOS, it, does some, it uses some macOS placement for that. That means that you can profile not only like CPU, but you can also profile other events like memory allocations. So you can run the profiler in allocation mode so that the flame graph that you obtain will show you where most of the allocations happen. And besides that, you can all even do the profile of context switches and other events. Haven't used them that much, but CPU and allocation profiling works very well. But the problem with or kind of like the peculiar part about CPU profiling using CLJ Async Profiler is that it doesn't register kind of like waiting threads, so to say. So it only makes snapshots, it only takes stake traces of running thread. So let's say if you have a program that waits on IO a lot and it waits on IO by like doing the blocking wait and during that time it doesn't do anything, CLJ Async Profiler will not see that, basically. So it won't tell you that you have this one function that blocks for 10 seconds, basically, or like it blocks the most time that your program takes is within this function because it blocks. So it won't tell you that. Uh, Visual VM, it actually, like, I remember it having separate columns, like CPU time and total time. So if you make that, if you take the profile, then you can separately sort by either. So if you're only interested in time on CPU, like real running time, you can see that, or you can also look at the total time, or like wall clock time, so to say. The next tool that I want to touch on was CLJ Memory Meter, which again is Rapital. You know, it's a Rapital. I don't mean to <laughs> diminish the, the work that you've done because uh, I own it. Absolutely. I mean, it's a bit of a pattern in most of the libraries under Logigo's Fast umbrella because I take the hard work done by some very smart people and I basically just repackage it in a more convenient way for Clojure developers. And that's great. I am very excited about how much you can, with so little, how much value does it bring. So with this CLJ memory meter, there is the Java agent that if you start an application with it, and then you'll be able to, within your code, say, calculate the size of this object with all its fields and all the objects within its fields and, and so on. So it does it recursively. And I find this agent great. And I actually, I don't think I would use it if I was writing Java full-time, because again, it all comes down to this problem that I have to set up a test. Within that test, I have to generate some sample data that I want to measure with this memory agent. 
and so on. So I'll probably just not use it. But on the other hand, with CLJ Memory Meter, which is a wrapper that you can use from the REPL, it's it's very convenient to do it. So you don't have any second thoughts to use it. You have no reservations to do it. You have this data structure, whatever, it's a nested map, and it's just a few keystrokes away to wrap it in this measuring function. And suddenly you get the size of the object with all its fields and so on. And there is debugging flag as well that you can pass in. And then it will render the layout of the object, basically. So you will see all the private fields and what is contained in those private fields. And if those are objects again, it will do it recursively and so on and so forth. And it's a very convenient tool when you need it. But even when you don't need it, it's a great learning tool. And it's a common theme for most of the libraries and closure goes fast. I'd say even it's like it's a learning tool first and foremost. I can give you another example. I absolutely dread the moment when I have to launch Eclipse Memory Analyzer tool. For those who don't know, it's a project that can allows to parse a heap dump, which is like a saved Java heap saved into a file. So it parses the heap dump and generates a lot of things based on that heap dump. And it has its own query language that you can use so that you can discover, let's say, memory leaks or understand what occupies your heap, your memory in your Java program. So it's a great tool, but it like for relatively heap, let's say 16 gigabytes, it takes like five minutes to parse it. And it's like Clips-based application, so it's not very, the UI is not very responsive. But I mean, I'm not trying to kind of this MIT, the, the memory analyzer tool, I'm pretty sure that all the work that it's doing, it's not slow because it's poorly written. I'm pretty sure it's written as, as efficiently as it could be. But it doesn't help the fact that it's very inconvenient to use in that regard. I'm not going to take the heap dump of my program and then wait for five, 10 minutes for the heap dump to be parsed so that I can learn how much an object occupies. It's not my <laughs> definition. It's not my definition of fun for, for sure. And it's a shame because, I mean, there are heaps of information, pun intended, to be learned by using memory analyzer tool. There is a lot to be learned and I just don't do it because it's not fun. And because I use it very rarely, it's a good thing. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy that I don't have to use it very often because it happens so infrequently, I kind of forget how to use it every time. So besides just waiting five minutes for heap to be parsed, I have to spend some time Googling again how the query language works, what's the syntax and like what buttons do I press with an application? to learn what I want to learn. So it's terrible. <laughs> it's really terrible that it has to be like this. And that is basically the reason why these small tools like CLJ memory exist. It's a total counterpart of that. It's a tool that you are happy to use and you use it even when you don't really have to, but just because it's interesting, just want to learn something by using it. And then you do and you learn it and you become a better developer from using it. One interesting fact I learned just by using CLJ memory matter is that an empty vector enclosure, it occupies 240 bytes, which is quite a lot comparatively. Yeah. And uh, so common pattern of using vectors for tuples might not be the best idea to do that if you're going to have a lot of tuples, let's say a million of them. It will be a lot of waste. That's because vector is the complicated data structure that has to support a lot of different things. But just because of that, like in its base form, it's not very efficient storage of small chunks of data. 
yeah, I learned it just by using CLJ memory matter. And I'm happy that I learned that. Yeah, that's something that I've kind of discovered more over my closure career at first, just using sort of the most obvious or idiomatic functions. And then over time realizing, oh, you know, there's actually a performance impact to or memory impact to these things. And most of the time, it's not too much an issue, but certainly it's very helpful to know when you're making a deliberate decision to use something maybe less efficient than or when you might want to just drop down to, say, a Java array or something else more. Yeah, absolutely. The knowledge that you obtain from these tools is most of the time like much more impactful than just the immediate optimization that you might happen to do because of it. Yeah, there's no kind of reporting or any sort of flame graph type. Out of this, it's just pass it to a an object and say whether you want to measure just the object or the object and its children, and that's it. Is that kind of the scope of CLJ memory meter? Yeah, it's quite simple in that regard. And because of the way it is implemented, it uses, uses reflection under the hood, the agent that shall work. And so it's not very fast by itself. So it's not meant to be measuring like millions of nested objects, right. gigabytes of space. So it's more for like this more local thing. So it's it's by no means a replacement for memory analyzer tool which is unfortunate because I'd love to replace MAT with something else. <laughs> but it's not a replacement. You still need MAT for things like that, more systematic and global memory profiling, so to say. But this thing is more localized. You just have your object and you measure it and that's it. And sort of diving down to the theme, we've sort of started at the high level of chiming and tracing, and now we're looking at memory details. And next thing I want to talk about was CLJ Java decompiler. What is this and why on earth would you want to go quite down to this level of granularity? Yeah, so the, the listeners might be aware that Clojure compiles to JVM bytecode, right? So the Clojure compiler, it doesn't go through Java as some people might think. It compiles directly to JVM bytecode and JVM knows how to run it. So that's basically how it works. And sometimes it might be interesting to look at the output of the Clojure compiler to see what it actually compiled down to. But looking at JVM bytecode is not the most obvious thing for many people. It's kind of similar to reading assembly. I mean, you can get used to it, but still it just takes practice and power of will and stuff like that. So what you can do instead, and this might be a little bit counterintuitive, but you can try to decompile the JVM bytecode to Java in order to read it. And it will not map to Clojure code one-to-one, obviously, because, again, Clojure does not compile to Java, only to be compiled to bytecode. It goes does it directly. In the output, there are some maybe not very obvious parts. But overall, still, reading that decompiled Java code to understand what Clojure compiled down to is much easier than reading the, the bytecode directly. And that's what I did with this project. I, again, took a readily available Java decompiler uh, that is distributed as a library, not a separate application. And I wrapped it into REPL-enabled library, and that's pretty much it. So the way you use it, you can wrap your form, or it's usually a function, you wrap your function in this decompile macro, and you run it together, and you get printed into the REPL this this decompiled bytecode that you can look at and try to understand what's going on. 
And answering your question, why would you want to do that? There are a couple of reasons. Again, I say the primary reason is uh, learning stuff. So it is, again, by itself, a great learning tool. It, it shows you some ways how Clojure Compiler works, what turtles these things that Clojure <laughs> compiles into, right? So you can learn that in some cases, like a loop macro, it compiles into for loop or into while loop. It's like for loop with a counter or some while loop, uh, maybe endless while loop with a break condition and stuff like that. You can learn that case macro is actually very complicated and like what it compiles into is by itself. More practical reasons I use this decompiler, let's say to look if primitive mass works correctly in my function, right? So it is possible to use primitive unchecked math in Clojure by binding certain dynamic variable, or you can use some unchecked math functions directly, like unchecked inc or unchecked multiply, stuff like that. But I like to double check and see like if I use those things, does it actually use unchecked mass under the hood? Did I by accident introduce some reflection into my program? Again, there are other tools for that. Of course, you can just set warn on reflection to true. But seeing the decompiled code for me is actually even a bit more convenient because I see exactly which invocation became reflective. So there are multiple on the same line. I'm not confused. And that's one of the examples. And what would you see in the decompiled Java? What would that look like if you versus the primitive math if people were wanting to, to use this? Oh, yeah, right. So you would actually see just like uh, Java operators, like plus and multiply and like for comparison, like uh, bigger or less. If it's checked mass, then you would see method invocations like number.inc or like uh, util.equals or something like that. So yeah, that's a distinction. And if you happen to introduce a reflective call, you would see something like reflector invoke and then the string name of the method. So it's like, by the very look of it, you see that something is wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One takeaway from this tool is that like when you see how scary reflection really uh, looks like in the compiled code, you learn to like, try to avoid it as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, there is actually Emacs plugin for CIDR. I- I'm not sure, even sure if it depends on CIDR, but uh, basically if you have CLJ Java decompiler on the class pass in your program, then you can press a combination, like a key uh, key combination, and it will do the decompiling of your form of your function, like without changing the code, and it will display it nicely in a separate buffer with Java highlighting. So I really like to use that. It's not within Closure Goes Fast project; like it's a separate open source project, kind of contributed, but uh, I use it all the time these days. Excellent. Well, I'll drop a link to that in the show notes as well. So for Emacs users, they can add that too. There's a couple of other projects you've worked on, JVM Hiccup Meter and JVM Alloc Rate Meter. Tell me more about what those are. Yeah, those are very simple libraries and they are intended to be used in production. The first one, the JVM, JVM Hiccup Meter. So the premise behind it is that sometimes like plenty of times, JVM can stall uh, 
for the reasons that are not immediately apparent. So for example, everyone knows about garbage collection pauses and all garbage collectors can report those pauses. So it is written in some into some management bin or into logs or somewhere else so that you can look there and kind of understand like if there was a, let's say one second pause in your application because of the garbage collector you will probably learn it but then there are some other pauses that are not so immediately apparent and are not so much monitored I would not delve into like enumerating all of them, but the idea behind JVM hiccup meter is very simple. So it starts a thread and it sleeps for thousand milliseconds and it wakes up and it checks how much time actually elapsed. So most of the time, of course, you would get some small drift in the matter of like five to 10 milliseconds because thread sleep is not like perfectly accurate but the drift should be small but then if you woke up like two seconds or three seconds or five seconds already passed then it means that there was some hiccup without within the jvm that made your thread stall for so much time so yeah you you run this you run this thread and you kind of assume if this simple thread that does nothing but thread sleep was stalled for so much time, then probably some of your application threads were stalled as well. So it's kind of like just an assumption, but uh, turns out to be quite accurate. And then you can take this drift, you can take this extra pause that happens and you can report it yourself somewhere into your monitoring tool or, or somewhere so that you can see it. You, you can map if, let's say, there was some performance blip in some request that was done to your server, say request the processing of request took five seconds when it should have been instant. So without this hiccup meter, you are left wondering like whether it's really your code that was doing something for so long that it took so much time for the request to be served, or maybe some other reason, or was it just purely JVM hiccup that you could not influence? And this is the tool that kind of helps you answer that question. And uh, JVM alloc rate meter is also a very simple tool that basically reports the allocation rate, the garbage allocation rate of your program, if you can say it like that. Again, it's not some information that is not available anywhere else. You can take it from GC logs most of the time, like a lot of GCs, they report how much new objects, how much garbage was collected, how much new objects were allocated since the last run, and kind of calculate that into this per second rate. This library that I did, it just allows you to expose that information into the monitoring tool without parsing the logs or doing something crazy like that. So again, very simple, but in some cases quite telling. So memory rate, so to say, like memory bandwidth can be one of the bottlenecks in the production application. And it's good to know whether you might be approaching something like that. And do you run these on your production servers at Grammarly? Yes. So these are purely for production use. Sometimes I run alloc rate meter locally. If let's say I want to compare two implementations of an algorithm, let's say I have a feeling that one produces much more garbage than the other one. So I kind of want to 
estimate how much garbage that is per invocation, let's say. So I can kind of start this allocation rate measuring thread in the background and then run my implementations, run one, run another, and then kind of calculate from the allocation rate per second and how many times the function managed to be called within the time span. So I kind of estimate how much garbage is produced per invocation and I can compare the two. But uh, yeah, it's mostly for, for production use. Cool. So another thing that you've been involved in both on Closure Goes Fast and also in conference talks is talking about garbage collection and garbage collectors at and some interesting garbage collectors that have been worked on in the last few years. And I see you've been using the Shenandoah or you know, at least experimenting with it. Um, would you be able to talk a little bit about, you know, what is what is Shenandoah? I mean, I know you've got a whole talk on it and you know, there's plenty of talks about it, so don't we don't need to go super deep, but why is this interesting? Why would people even be thinking about using, you know, a different job garbage collector than the one that Java chooses as the, the default? Yeah, Java ecosystem is currently kind of experiencing this renaissance of uh, having new and exciting garbage collectors. There are, in fact, two of them. It's Shenandoah and the other one is uh, ZGC. ZGC, or I think it's pronounced like that. Anyway, what's interesting about those two garbage collectors is that um, their main selling point is shorter pauses. And uh, basically, like, a garbage collector has plenty of characteristics to judge it by uh it it has the kind of like throughput right so uh like how much garbage it can collect under a unit of time and uh then uh, you can measure it by the overhead that the garbage collector causes to the program because different garbage collectors depending on how they are implemented they add some overhead to have your program executes because in case of of jvm and i'm pretty sure it's uh it's true for other uh languages as well garbage collector has to be like it's very deeply involved with the runtime in case of java garbage collector influences just in time compiler it causes it to generate different native code to support some of these garbage collectors features and utilities so yeah Depending on the garbage collector, your program might run faster, it might run slower uh, in terms of throughput. And then, of course, the thing that everyone talks about are the pauses, because all of garbage collectors, pretty much they have to pause your application at some point in order to do their work. And depending on the algorithm, depending on the implementation, these pauses can be very short or they can be very long. Uh, so obviously for example one of the default garbage collectors which was default until java 8 i think was the parallel gc which is a parallel implementation of serial gc but the idea is basically your program runs and it allocates and it allocates it creates these objects at some point is exhausted so there is no space anymore to create new objects and that's when your program is stopped and the garbage collector kicks in it goes over the heap, it finds all the objects that are not used anymore, that don't have any references to them, so they are 
hands considered dead and can be reclaimed. The space can be reclaimed. So it does that. It clears the heap. Depending on the implementation, it can leave the heap as is, or it may decide to relocate all of the alive objects together so that they are more tightly packed tightly together so that memory access patterns are more efficient. So during the time all that happens, your application is stalled. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't service the incoming requests. doesn't do the work, et cetera, et cetera. For some applications, it's fine. If you take, let's say, some batch processing job, that one usually does not care even if the application is stopped for a minute unless there is some watchdog that kills it if it does nothing for a minute, but that's another story. But yeah, in, under normal circumstances, you don't care about long post times in that scenario, but you care about throughput and you want to you want your processing job to be as efficient as possible, not caring about the bosses. But if you take another example, if you take some more or less real-time system that serves live requests and has... Uh, more or less strict like requirements on how fast the response has to arrive how like how fast the uh, how quickly the serve, uh, the request has to be served in that case like having a 30 second garbage collection pause <laughs> is let's say not ideal you might want to sacrifice some of the efficiency of running the actual code by making it so that the pauses are not as long as in some other case. So yeah, if we take Shenandoah, the way it achieves these short, very short pauses, it does most of the garbage collecting work concurrently with the application. You can roughly divide the garbage, like most of garbage collectors, like the work they do, it's first they mark the heap, which means they go over the objects and they discover which ones are alive and which ones are dead. And the second step is, let's say it's, it's called evacuation, which means relocating the alive objects into the same place so they are more, they say, tightly together. If you take G1 garbage collector, which is the current default one in Java, it performs this concurrent marking phase, which means that while it does the marking, your program is not stopped. It continues to be running. It might be uh, running a little bit slower compared to when the garbage collector does not work, but it's running nonetheless. It is not paused. But then the relocation stage, like the, the evocation step, that one has to be run what's called uh, stop the world, which means your yeah, application is stopped and garbage collector does its work, and uh, then your program is started again. So G1 is partly concurrent, and Shenandoah and ZGC are fully concurrent. They do both marking and evacuation concurrently with your application, so to say. They still have pauses, uh, because there is um, Shenandoah has four stop-the-world pauses. They are ideally very brief, so... They are done in order to like kind of like synchronize some internal structures within the garbage collector so that it can set up some flags that have to be set under a mutex, uh, so to say. It's still unavoidable to do this stop the world part, but it tries to make it as brief as possible and do as much as possible concurrently with the application. And this is something that you're using 
at Grimily. Yes, we, we use uh, Shenandoah uh, in a couple of projects where uh, the boss times were like were getting too high and like it became a problem. Uh, but then there were also a couple of projects where we tried using Shenandoah and the overhead, like the throughput overhead was quite noticeable compared to G1. So let's say the CPU was loaded more or it could process less requests per second with Shenandoah rather than with G1. So we uh, reverted to G1 in that case. It's an kind of like an example that all those excited things, they are really exciting. Uh, they are worth learning about and understanding how they work. And then you still have to kind of apply your judgment and try and evaluate and see what works better. Have you evaluated the Z garbage collector compared to Shenandoah? Or? I haven't tried it yet. I don't remember the exact reason why I didn't, but back at the time I was actively working on these garbage collecting uh, collection problems in some Grammarly projects. Uh, Shenandoah was quite a good fit, so maybe that was the reason I haven't uh, haven't gone further to try ZGC as well. Makes sense. And yeah, so if people are looking at garbage collectors, there's, there's quite a few options now to pick from, as well as the, I think the original at least the one that I was most aware of before these was the Azul garbage collector had their own sort of pauseless garbage collector, which I, which I assume is what inspired all of these other yeah, open source free garbage collectors. Yeah, indeed. So uh, yeah, like you said, Azul uh, has uh, their own, it's called C4, C4 garbage collector, which uh, has like very brief pauses they call it pauseless but i'm not sure it's like if it's completely pauseless <laughs> and uh, they have an openly published paper about how it is designed and basically as far as i know zgc is like very close to that papers probably by now they have a lot of their own design decisions like originally it was implemented very closely following that paper yeah and so, you know, you've been thinking and working on performance and getting to work in an environment where you're loaded enough that you can evaluate the impacts of your performance work pretty quickly, I imagine. What have been some things that you've taken away or changed how you write closure code when you, you know, first start writing, but even before you break out the memory meter or the async profiler, you sort of just say, oh, well, I kind of have a good enough intuition now of which way I want to go for this particular problem uh yeah um i mean like working on these tools first and like with these tools after that certainly influenced in some way how i approach the problem i wouldn't say that like there are some specific things i do like specific things i try to avoid except maybe for dynamic variables because they turned out to be quite slow if you invoke things that use them a lot Besides that, I still try to start with the simpler solution first, then see if it's good enough. doesn't mean that I don't try to, again, use my tools, try to profile it, try to just to verify that it behaves the way that I expect it to be. But overall, it's still a simpler solution first, and then see how it works. That's the approach that has been working best for me. 
So more widely, what are your thoughts after having looked at Clojure's performance and examined it, seen it in production, seen the impacts of using Clojure on sort of high throughput web applications? What are you thinking about Clojure's performance impact? And are there things that the Clojure language could be doing differently to, to perhaps improve it? Or is it just you know, inherent trade-offs in, in what we get with Clojure? Yeah, so the answer to this question would be twofold, I think. So there are certain performance trade-offs that are already made since you're running on JVM. And uh, I'd say like those are the big ones. So, for example, the fact that you don't have uh, direct access to memory and it makes it harder to work with some, to work directly, let's say, with binary files, but there are APIs to do that. For example, it is impossible or not very convenient to, let's say, make headerless objects, right? Or like Mm -hmm. emulate some sort of C structures that you want to pack together into an array and ensure that they stay in the same place. So that would be one example. Or again, it's like you cannot make objects that don't go through the garbage collector. So imagine like you have this subsystem in your program that generates a lot of objects or these you want them to be these C-like structures. And there are a lot of them and they have very contained life cycles. So like, you know, when to create them, you know, where to kill them and how many of those there will be. So you don't, you can upfront know how much memory you want to allocate for them. So you wouldn't want to strain your garbage collector with like tracking those and collecting those and so on. But you can do that in the JVM or you can do with some hacks and uh, that's that's too complicated. That's one part. And there are certainly trade-offs connected with that. And uh, you can't do much with it either from Clojure or from Java. And the parts where we, let's say, compare the performance characteristics of Clojure to Java, I think those are not too important, at least because, again, speaking from my experience, if there is something that cannot be made as efficient in Clojure as it is in Java, you can always write it in Java. <laughs> and, and it's very easy to do so. I personally use Zach Talman's library called, called Virgil, which kind of like you write Java code and it gets immediately compiled inside the REPL. So you can use it right away. You don't have to restart the REPL like you would do usually with Lion again in order to see, like to get the newly compiled class files, Java class files. Using a tool like that makes it very easy to just offload some let's say primitive mass or like some byte crunching to Java, it gets to unwieldy enclosure or like too inconvenient to do enclosure. So that's one part. Of course, uh, certain idiomatic closure approaches are not so efficient by themselves. For example, like using immutable collections, obviously, and uh, just creating closure on average creates much more garbage then let's say like closure program creates more objects, more garbage than a Java program. And uh, most of the time it's fine. And uh, again, these new age garbage collectors 
actually very good with dealing with a lot of garbage again because the pauses are shorter so you you don't care so much about uh more objects being allocated and again there are certain improvements done in those garbage collectors that allow them to handle more throughput uh more like uh, still efficiently so it's it's a potential problem but uh in practice not so much then there are some minor things like closure produces a lot of class files so we have like every function is a class file certain things in the jvm might get slower because of that again those same garbage collectors like shenandoah it is actually that post times are influenced by the number of classes loaded into the jvm we talk about differences of a pause being not a couple hundred microseconds but a couple mi- milliseconds so i'd say in most cases that would be fine but uh, certain types of applications that might target that pause time that wants sub millisecond pauses they would probably avoid using closure for that kind of project so all in all i'd say it's all pretty minor closure gives you a lot of ways out of its possibly inefficient idiomatic decisions so that you can pick those ways out where it is important and just ignore it if it's not important the way you distinguish between the two is having the tools that tell you that learning to use them and using them because they are convenient and fun to use is there anybody that you'd like to thank or mention as part of this this work you've been doing yeah, I mean, like I've said, I've used a lot of other people's work in writing these wrapper libraries of mine. So definitely thanks to Andre Pangin for async profiler. A huge thanks to Alexei Shipilov for developing Shenandoah and doing a lot of educational material, talks and blog posts and documents about it and other Java performance topics. I learned a lot from him. Looking forward to the new new information he publishes and uh, all of the people that I might not remember names of but uh, use their work daily and very happy they did it and shared it with the world excellent and looks like Grimley is hiring for a very large number of people actually just looking at the, the job openings page looks like 50 plus I would guess which is a lot yeah are there any particular ones that you're aware of that are closure like how much closure is there in Grammarly versus Common Lisp and other. Yeah, it's two teams that use Clojure these days. It's my team and the team adjacent to our team that use Clojure. I don't think there are any open Clojure positions right now, but there certainly will be. And we recently made changes to like the remote work flexibility that might interest some of the listeners. So stay tuned. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your work on all of this performance stuff. You know, the whole Clojure community really benefits every time you create a tool or write something up to give us some of your insights. So thank you very much for everything you do. And yeah, I will be very keenly watching the Clojure Goes Fast blog. Cool. Thanks for having me. I had a blast talking to you today. Thanks for doing all the work that you do for the Clojure community, the podcast, Clojure is Together. Absolutely amazing. Awesome. Well, have a great day. Yeah, you too.